0: This is the Biz of Wealth. Challenges, rumblings, and evolution of the wealth management industry. Welcome to Business of Wealth. Today, I'm here with Karen Rands. Hi, Karen. Hello. How are
1: you, Alondra? It's great to be here. Excited about this.
0: Yes, me too. Um, I've been talking to a couple of VCs lately, so I want to, you know, Doug, dig writing and talk about your profile first, you know, where you come from. I see, you know, we all see that you are very well-renowned uh, authors. So first, you know, give me a quick overview, overview of what got you here and what's here for you. Okay. Uh, so
1: I've uh, been fascinated by the whole like the spirit of entrepreneurism and and, and innovation uh, most of my life, you know, as a, as a, as a girl, I had this vision of what my life was going to be like when I was going to be traveling around. And I didn't even really know the term entrepreneur back then, but I just sort of had this idea. And then fast forward after going through Scott college and graduate school. And then I was in the corporate gig and uh, with IBM I found myself right at the at the beginning of the dot com period, working with a lot of companies that were those kind of companies that the the evolution of technology had enabled. And in the IBM world, that would be, you know, regular brick and mortar stores going online. We call them click and mortar. And then you also had, um, you know, folks that were uh just you know what we now call cloud computing back then was asps because they were not your client server and you had just you know all kinds of different kind of innovation that was enabled because of things connecting we didn't really have the internet quite the way and the web interfaces quite like we have now but there was a lot of this kind of stuff and businesses that were because of the ability the world becoming flat so to speak you know they were outsourcing virtual services overseas and that was a really new thing so i was a complex opportunity business manager that was helping uh these companies get their stuff together so that an ibm to approve or like we called it the betty crocker seal of approval of their whatever their solution was but the idea they would go out and get venture capital money and comes back and spend it with IBM because we kind of helped them validate and then that would give them credo. Because IBM realized they had missed out on a lot of the big boys as they were, you know, standardizing on somebody else that was more flexible for startups and early stage companies than IBM was. So, I got this idea that I needed to be in this parade and not watch this parade go by. Cause this is where all the action is. And it's really exciting. And this, you know, all these startups and this kind of stuff. And I call it, it was like my own little bubble of IBM because I had no idea there was a dot-com bubble happening. And <laughs> for your listeners that are familiar with, you know, uh, classic movies, you know, uh, American movies, we have a, uh, uh, animal house with Jim Belushi. And at the end of this movie, they have, they're in this parade and it all, all it goes haywire. And because of these crazy antics, the band ends up going down this dead end alley and, and the comedy of it is that they're bu- they're all bumping into this wall and they're just like piling into this wall. Well, that was the parade I felt I had gotten into in January of, <laughs> of t- 2000 when I left IBM to go get because I had this client and I was going to go raising money. I was going to become rich and famous with this incredible piece of software. And I learned the first two things happened out of that that set the course for the rest of kind of where I am here, here, you know, the here and now. Three things, let's say. First of all, I discovered angel investors. Only thing I had ever heard of was venture capital and like SBA loans. And so I discovered angel investors um, because I went to this angel investor group where I was going to see if he should present at it. This client that I was now the head of marketing and this financial person, you know, raising money and stuff. And so, um, and so I discovered this world of angel investors, which was really fascinating. To me, that there were individuals that actually wrote checks out of their own checking account and put this money to work in helping these entrepreneurs. This gap between, you know, a bank and venture capital, or your own checking account or your credit card. To like who's the, they're the gap? They they finance the gap. So that was the first thing that that I discovered. That and then the second thing was that um, a great idea does not. I guess, make up for bad CEO, (laughs) 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 right? And so, you know, this guy, and it became part of my sort of philosophy going forward. And then uh, on that, because I realized that there were people with money, that loved what he, what he had developed. I mean, it was really, really would change the world. And today there's still no software out there that does it It was a medical solution and uh, that would save lives like this would have saved lives. But he was, I I knew it was difficult, but i had always been able to deal with him because I had IBM behind me. Right. And so he would do what I would say. But when it came to talking to the and giving up a piece of his company to an investor that told him he could not be the CEO because he 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 would be good in technology and vision, but he didn't know how to run a company. He didn't know how to team build, and he was very stubborn and obstinate. And they don't like people like that. So those became sort of like the that became kind of the foundation that set the stage for where I went. I ended up taking a, I ended up being mentored into that angel group as the Girl Friday, and that. I was the Vanna White that would, you know, introduce the companies and all that kind of stuff and do some of the things I've learned all about the angel investing process, interviewed hundreds of angel investors on how they got started, figured out that they, a lot of them, there was really no education or training or guidance on how to become an angel investor back then. And there still really isn't. And that's, of course, the problem I'm trying to solve with my book, which way it goes. So anybody's just looking at inside secrets to angel investing. My book solves that as a step-by-step guide on would you, should you, could you? And then, you know, now I'm continuing on developing more education programs and offerings for investors that don't have the benefit of a a group that does a lot of that support and wants to be a part of investing in companies and all the different ways that they can invest nowadays and wants to do it with confidence. So
0: So let's get started there. You know, who... Who should start to invest as an angel investor? You know, you mentioned it's it's an individual person. So I have savings, and instead of putting it in the stock market, like well, yeah, I'm not having a good time right now. Um, I want to evaluate and invest in companies, but honestly, the first the first thing I think about is okay, knowledge of the companies. second time, right? Who has the time? (laughs) So, okay, what are the qualifications uh, or filters you should think about before becoming an angel investor? And what, what do you say in that sense?
1: Well, time is a big issue for it, right? Because one of the benefits of angel groups is that they usually have committees or they have a structure to screen deals as well as do due diligence before you start to invest, to, to vet the companies, to to vet, vet the management team, to validate what they say is true about their intellectual property, to validate the market opportunity, things like that. Because, you know, entrepreneurs that are in private companies and I, part of what I talk about in my podcast I've done, transparency is one of the challenging things that, you have in the difference between a private company and a public company because a public company is obligated by the SEC and they get in big trouble if they aren't fully disclosing and transparent about their financial situations, the risks, the ups and downs, all that kind of stuff. Whereas with private companies, they technically have a document, the private placement memorandum that's supposed to disclose that. That's the reason why they're, those private placement randoms are really dry and hard to read. And most people don't like to read them because they don't say anything nice about the company because they're, they're not supposed to say, Oh, we're going to do all these wonderful things. And if we get that Microsoft contract, because, you know, they'll talk to you about there's conversations and all this kind of stuff, but they can't say because it hadn't happened yet. right? Right. And there's all these disclaimers on future statements, and, you know, and uh, individual investors, you know, acknowledge that they're taking the risk of, you know, of, of this may not come out the way you anticipate it can, but, and that's why there's fraud stuff. And that's one of the things that you look at during due diligence, because if the, it, unfortunately the way it works within the STC and the, and the private markets is that the only time is when a, a, a company fails or does something wrong or something happens and a group of their private investors get upset with them file a complaint with the SEC eventually the SEC investigates and the SEC finds that those founders to have issued fraudulent statements or misleading statements about their potential or their status of their current deal. They said they had a patent, but it was really patent pending, you know, and you made your decision because you thought they for sure had a patent. So it was protected, things like that. Then they will um, get fined, have to return the money, which makes the company go out of business because they've already spent that money yeah. and they get labeled a bad actor. So you saw when they came out with the crowdfunding, there was this move within the new crowdfunding stuff under Reg A plus five hundred six C and Greg CF, very specifically the exclusion of bad actors in the comp in the company. So first and foremost, and in fact, I'll could uh, I had a company that uh, had presented when I ran my angel investor group presented to us, that was. Um, unfortunately one of my investors really liked it he went off on his own spent his own money to go deeper into the due diligence and he found that they that the founder was a bad actor they had had a previous situation that that had happened and it it was supposedly wasn't his fault but he still because he was part of the c-suite he still got labeled that and so he um You know, I think you can't, you can't take an investment from bad actors and stuff like that, you know, as well. So um, it becomes something that is important to consider, but, you know, sometimes people just invest on the emotion. So the first thing I would tell you is you kind of have to come up, you have to figure out, and I talk about this in detail in the book, but you have to figure out what is your amount of your savings or your portfolio that you want to invest that you feel comfortable if you were to lose it. Like nobody feels comfortable losing it, but it's not going to, you know, you can always make more money. Right. And so, you know, as long as you're not losing your house or your kid's college education or something like that, right. It's extra money you have. Um, And then usually the rule of thumb, and I confirmed this in uh, um, an event I was at a couple of weeks ago that it's it ends up being between six and ten percent of your overall portfolio that you might put into this alternative asset class. So you look at what that amount is. And so if you were to look at the way people do it, is you look at all your assets. You got stocks, you got real estate, you got your your money your money market assets. What does that make up? And then out of that would be, you know, six percent. You know, some people will say it's like. 10% so of it's their not liquidity. Six
0: or seven, yeah, there is a net, li, like something that is liquid. It doesn't matter. Not in six percent to 7% of net worth. No. It might be 10% of your other stuff,
1: but it might end up only being 3 or 4% of your liquid stuff. And what right. is that number? And then that will dictate a lot of what you can play in. And then, you know, because most of your regular deals that go to angel investor groups have a minimum investment of at least $10,000, usually around $25,000. But when you get into the direct public offerings of Reg CF and Reg A+, you can have as small as like $500, you know, $1,000. That's kinds what of we call thing.
0: crowdfunding mostly. Yeah. Right. So um, let's differentiate that. You're saying... You know, if I want to get in, the first thing I should do is to, uh, you know, well, of course, decide how much I'm going to invest, and that's going to determine where, which groups I'm going to go to. And then the other thing is really getting to. You keep mentioning angel investing groups. Um, why? Why do you keep bringing those up? I, I knew you were working on one. What? What's the? What's the pros and cons there? Okay, so. So, yeah, so the
1: traditional way before the JOBS Act of 2012 and before we had direct public offering, which a lot of people refer to as crowdfunding, um, and the crowdfunding has mixed mixed meanings to people. So I talk direct public offering because you're directly offering it to the public, but it's not a public offering. little name, name and clincher there. But anyhow, so um, before that, the only way that people received capital was either just because I knew somebody, a friend in a family kind of a thing, or through angel groups, mm-hmm. and then a- and it could be formal or informal groups. Informal groups could be five friends that get around uh, the, at the Denny's and you know talk about deals that they like, or they're country club- golf buddies or something like that. So there, you know, you have like investment clubs that look at public stocks. Well, you have investment clubs that now look at private cannabis stocks, they had investment clubs that look at different kind of things. So those would be an informal kind of a group. And then a formal group would be one where you have very structured meetings, where a screening process, you have membership fees, you have a commitment, an obligation to invest a certain amount every year kind of a thing and so you know it's got a structure a very a structure to it right there and, and things like that and the, the level of the structure can vary depending on the size some will have a managing director that's paid money some will be all volunteers but they take it there they and in in almost all of those cases though they have an obligation of the members to volunteer to be on committees so you know so they're uh, either as a screening, or due diligence, or planning events, or something, right? Getting sponsors, whatever it might be. So, so the the plus of that is that you have the benefit of d- many different minds and many different experiences coming together to talk about deals and make make decisions together. And sometimes they'll make a decision that, and they'll do this. And then you can always kind of come in for more kind of a thing. If you like a deal in particular. Um, and so, and, uh, so that it's a plus from that standpoint and, um, you know, and you know, the deals have been vetted, those kind of things. And then, um, but then the downside to that, if you're not... And almost all of them, you're required to be an accredited investor in that. And they may provide ask you to do that. And for your listeners, an accredited investor is somebody who individually over the last, I believe it's three years has made a minimum of $250,000 in earned income. That's typically your W2 and has a million dollar in assets, not including their primary residence. And then, or it's 350. I usually just go with 400,000 for a couple, but it's, you know, household income with the the same sort of thing. It's based off of, of earned income. And so, um, and then usually though they do just they don't have to prove it they just sort of sign it but people kind of know you know because it also the requirements of minimum investments you know it's not for the fate of heart right and so yeah, yeah so that's that's kind of the plus there the downside is is that it does take a commitment of yeah. time I mean, they always take time, but it takes a commitment of time in that if you are and you're usually by location, most of those cities, most of those are only in major metro areas. So if you happen to not live in a major metro area that has an angel investor group or you find yourself um, because you're running your own business or you have your obligations of your job require you to be on the road a lot. Or as people go into having families, they have obligations to do stuff with their family, their kids, their, you know, little league, whatever, that kind of thing. And so a group doesn't really fit them. They're the kind of person that might, they already manage their own um, E-Trade account, right? They're very comfortable looking at financial statements. They're comfortable making their own decisions, being able to look at reports and make a decision because, and so in a Reg A Plus world and the portal, so switching over, so that's kind of the, the structure of the group, right? And you only get the deals that they see. So if you have experience beyond technology and you like other stuff, they may not come through an angel group. Usually angel groups are very, focused on the kinds of deals that they look at and so you won't get the gamut so like in my group uh we were known for being able to uh, do tech and consumer products and you know creative things my criteria was they had to have raised at least half of their initial round before they came to us and so we would rely on the due diligence of these other structured groups because my group didn't have those kind of committees we were informal formal we had a structure and stuff but we didn't have committees and um I did my team did all the screening and you know so there was there was a little bit of difference there but we would get a lot of really interesting things a movie or a consumer product that was going through Lowe's or a new alternative sweetener that had you know was in 45 you know uh stores and was expanding to 3,000 stores and we're raising you know what I mean we had creative stuff that was a little different that you would never see in the light of day in Atlanta technology angels which was the other group in Atlanta and so that was the reason why a lot of people liked ours and I had a lot of those executives and those owners of businesses that liked the fact they didn't have to commit the time but you know, there's its downsize to that, which is why my, that angel group doesn't exist anymore. So if you're going as an individual and these direct public offerings, all right, the whole reason why it happened was to open up the opportunity to people that weren't accredited. Yeah. Because when those came into play after the Great Recession, it was um, in response. Most people think it was in response to. Um, giving entrepreneurs more access to capital. And that was definitely part of it because they didn't have to go through these narrow gauntlets of angel groups. And we had seen how reward-based crowdfunding had really elevated and accelerated a lot of new technology to get into the marketplace that probably wouldn't have gotten into the marketplace if they had been dependent on traditional angels. Things like 3D printers and drones and, you know, even goofy things like the fidget widget, you know, I usually have sitting here as a, as a prop, but smartwatches. Yeah. smartwatches, all that stuff came to market with millions of dollars that people had done as reward-based. And for your audience, that means they got the product early, right? They bought it before it was ready. The yeah, it's owner, a Kickstarter model. Yes. Right. And they would get, but the, oh, the people that put that money in only got product. They didn't get any equity. So when those companies went on to be successful, those investors, all they had was their widget. Right. Yeah. And so, um, they saw this as an opportunity because so many people had lost their savings and so much of their retirement because of the collapse of the financial, uh, the financial markets that affected real estate and the stock market. And it took a decade for people to get back to zero on their real estate holdings if they didn't sell them. At that time, if they held on to when they held on to that stock, 10 years later, you're back to zero. That was pretty much the the metrics of what of how that happened. Whereas had they had an opportunity to invest in this company that might do 4x or 10x their money, you never get that kind of return on real estate and and uh, uh, and and the stock market. Right. You don't have that potential return on those. And so it's, you know, not in the short period of time you have with startups, eventually. Real estate will become four times worth and things like that, but usually not unless you got a really great deal. But you know, the general rule of thumb. And so it was an opportunity for people to play at whatever level they felt like playing at. And so it was a real aha moment for me when I was listening to one of Jason Kalkonis's podcasts years ago with the founder of Seed Invest. And he, you know, and Jason, if you don't, if your listeners aren't sure who he is, he's, uh, he tech crunch, He is like a known guy in the tech world because he invested in Uber. He invested in a lot of the, the big ones. And he initially had that money because he had been a successful tech entrepreneur himself. And now he's kind of like a granddaddy of, of investors out there, the super investor. And so he said if he knew what he knew now, he wouldn't have started his company at 22 years old. He would have gotten a corporate gig. And he would have um, taken $500 a month because you couldn't, you wouldn't get matching on your 401k for five years till you're invested. So he would take $500 a month and put it into a Reg CF company, just things he knew, things he liked, things he was, you know, not really stressing too much about it because it was $500, you know, because you spend that on, you know, not necessarily on Starbucks, but some people, but there's all kinds of habits that people have that they spend $500 a month on, right? You might not be able to buy that fancy, you know, evening bag or something or shoes or whatever our indulgences are if you wanted to do this. But you think at the end of five years, okay, so you do the math, that's 60 companies you would have invested in. And if you look at just the the normal thing that pretty much the whole industry goes by, out of 10 investments... You're going to get three that fail, three that do, you know, okay, three that do pretty good. You make good money on that, at least double your money. And then one that hits it out of the park and, you know, makes it up for all the others. So if you go with that out of 60, that's six companies that hit it out of the park. Right. So now it's 500 investments. So it's not like you're going to make $50,000 on those. But, you know, when you add it all up and you just do those numbers, it's going to be a lot more than the what's the math on that, the 500 by 60, the, uh, so was that $30,000? Mm-hmm. So you would have invested a total of $30,000 over that period of time, which in general, you know, that's as much as like an accredited investor might do in one, but you've spread it out over lots of different types of companies, lots of different types of things. And you would learn a whole lot about the process on that five years so that in the end of five years with that additional money and with whatever your income has grown over those five years in the corporate world, you now very well could be in a position to start playing in the big boys with the accredited investors, right? right. And start participating or even taking... One of your winnings, because I kind of like it's like you're you know you you're out in Vegas and you know you take your money off the table and now you just got you're running with the house money, and so you take that money and you put yeah. you put that into a fund. So when you don't have a lot of time and you start, so one way is to put it into these angel funds that they there it's like being in a mutual fund, but it's for angel investments. Right. So you could do that where you might put 30 grand in and they'll put it into different investments, giving you the option to add to it if you like a particular
0: one. So there's those are the kind of ways to get started. In that case, you're buying into the reputation of the fund, mostly, right? Right. Exactly. so, So tell me one huge success and one huge failure for you as an angel investor. Well, my huge success hasn't been
1: huge yet, but I believe it will be huge because it's on track. It's just taken a lot longer than it, um, it originally thought that it would take. And, and uh I co-invested with my angel group. It was one that we had had a very substantial angel group out of Boston had already been a lead investor. So we had the benefit of that. And it was, it was uh, it had, had figured out how to take RFID tags, which we're not, if your audience isn't familiar, RFID tags are those things like when you go to the store and they forgot to take them off and it beeps when you go out. That's how most people think of RFID tags. And they usually cost pennies because they're, and they've got where they're just in a tag. It's not even the thing that comes off. Right. And so they just scan it and it turns it off, but it's usually that well, they needed because of a, a airline project Um, They had won the bid for was to figure out how to take RFID tags and make them hold a phone book information rather than just a 18 bit code or something. Right. And so it became a technology it's a, Tego is the name of the company T E G O. It became a technology that is transforming transportation across the board, but also medical, also manufacturing in, uh, like in big, you know, like in car manufacturing, because they found that this technology could resist gamma rays, it could resist high heat. And it was passive until a scan came to it and turned it on. So it didn't beacon the Department of Defense. They were looking for something because they have a real hard time keeping track of inventory because when they're in enemy, they beacons and the enemy can know where they are. And so it solved all kinds of problems. But guess what? Chips. You had to sell a lot of chips, apparently, to yeah. make any kind of money. So, yeah. yeah, they had to create the whole ecosystem of selling the development kits and like enabling people see. to program their stuff. So did, it's going to be there. Did you see that coming when you invested, or no? We we well, we knew the air transportation thing was 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 like a big opportunity. Right. Because they wanted to be able to completely maintain, know what the maintenance records were on a plane without having to take it out of cycle and pull it into the hangar. And at around that time, it had not been that long ago that, that the thing happened with I think it was AirTran where they had some expired uh, oxygen tanks and all the planes got grounded till they could go in and check every oxygen tank on air and it cost them so much money. Oh, and wow. so they wanted to this uh, the other they wanted to avoid this. With these Dreamliners, I think was the name of the, or Dream something was the name of the new plane. They wanted to avoid that by happening. So every, everybody that manufactured anything on a plane ended up adopting this. So now one person wow. can walk through on the plane and they can say every little thing that would you would need to check will sign in and say, I'm good, or I'm not good, or whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that was one. So I'm still really eagerly anticipating an acquisition in that space. They just been building value. And because of the, of the supply chain issues, and the, I think they kind of stalled a little bit, and they'll be back into it here, they've had a problem with COVID and that kind of stuff. And I think the US um, passing the chip encouragement of building chips here because China was doing all their manufacturing of chips. And so now they'll bring that into the US and that's going to really help their game. So I'm ex- very excited, optimistic that's going to happen. The one that I'm, I'm not, ha- it had great potential and I made one of the very first rules of angel investing is do not invest on your gut. Do not make an emotional investment. Oh wow!
0: Most number one rule: to connect to the people, and you know, make sure that you know, and and that you, you know, yeah, that's to, the number yeah. one rule,
1: right? I mean, when I was first interviewing investors before I wrote the book, and when I was learning about it, how investors made the decisions, I would ask them, "How'd you learn how to make how to become an investor?" He said, "Oh, I I invested in a couple of deals, and I lost all my money, and then I figured it out it out." What not to do. <laughs> like, that's horrible. Okay. So, in this case, what it was, was I totally let this guy pull on my heartstrings and uh-huh. I believed in what he was trying to do and the benefit it was going to be. And even though, even though I had like warning signs and I had that voice in me going, I don't know, Karen, I don't think you should put this money in it. But I was like, oh, how bad can it be? Because I, I was bridging him to do something that was going to help him raise a lot more money. And then that was going to set the stage.
0: Right.
1: But what I didn't realize was that he didn't really have the right software development team in place. I didn't ask additional questions. Like, how is he getting that developed? And he was. And what happened was... This group developed it and then Apple wouldn't accept it onto their, their, uh, their Apple list, whatever, for their games, whatever it's called. Yeah. yeah. And they, and, and they couldn't get their thing out there for people. So the people that had even given them money on this crowdfunding thing couldn't get the code. They had to send the code to them individually and, and it took him so many months because of the way tables had been written in there and just stuff that could have totally been avoided, but he never really launched properly. And so I could he would call, Oh, I feel so bad. I feel so bad. But, you know, <laughs> I'm the one that still don't have that money in my checking account. And I still talk to him. I still try to advise him to kind of get on track. He's learned a lot. The opportunity is actually still there. And, you know, but because it starts to be one of those things when you, when you've had, if you've made mistakes like that and you raised money and you didn't realize it, you know, and reach your milestones and do the things you say you can do, it becomes even harder to raise money later because people are like, mm, I don't know, this has got like a little smell to it, yeah. you know, what's going on here. And so that's one that, um. You know, I, and I, and I, I, it's like, I was like, oh my God, I just did what I tell my investors when I'm helping them make these decisions, part of what you have to do in the book and in the book, they get a resource portal. And then there is a, is a criteria, set your criteria up. And then there's a funnel that you run or a filter, you run your deals through. And if it doesn't meet the score right. that that says it has a minimum score Your ultimate decision will be on emotion, company A versus company B, which one, which guy do I like best or gal, which one do I like best? But get to the table of that with objective criteria that they've met this minimum amount and then let emotion choose that, right? A lot of times you'll have people that will jump in on FOMO, fear of missing out, and they'll go, oh, I got to get in on this deal. And because somebody else is excited about it, I did a podcast on my compassionate capitalist show on transparency and it was after the, uh, I forget her name right now, but the big, big SEC securities violation for fraud, for that, uh, that, the blood diagnostic. Oh yes.
0: That woman. Uh, Right.
1: Right. And all these people put money in on it and even uh, 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 Drape, Draper, yeah, Draper, even the big funds. And they confessed that they kept putting money into it, which gave it more credibility for other people's money into it because, one, they knew that if they didn't put money in it, they would lose it, even though they thought they were going to lose their money. And they didn't want to be embarrassed by the fact they had made a bad investment because he would never disclose her Patents and she would not disclose this stuff. She was so non-transparent, which was to me was that that is such a huge, huge red flag. But so many people jumped in on it because others were doing it. It was like this lemon, lemon hair mentality go off the cliff altogether, you know, and it just it happens. It totally happens that way. And so the first rule of thumb is that if you do get that little voice in the back of your head say, I'm not so sure about this, then take a step back. Start over with your due diligence or your criteria thing on it. Make sure you wait at least another two weeks. Never do something that, oh, we've got to close in two days. You know, never do the car sales. Never the do it. Yeah, the fast and like. Pressured
0: sale, right?
1: We'll give you an extra this, that, or the other if you just close in like these two days, you know, uh, bridge finance to this next thing. Unless, because I always say, if you're just bridge financing to this really big one or is to pay the fees of this really big one, why don't they just take it out of their closing? Right. Well, why do they need your money to pay for that? They just take it out of closing. Right. That's
0: interesting. Great. Oh, this has been a ton of information, Karen. I really, really like it. I just want to close with what do you find as compassionate capitalism? Okay, so I, I was, you know, intrigued by that.
1: So um, I adopted the term. I'd heard it in a different context before, and then I adopted it when, during this Great Recession. Because as I said, my angel investors were sitting on this, they were people that ran their own companies and stuff. So their money was sitting on the sidelines. And I was like, the best way for you to impact the economy and turn this thing around is to get your money off the sidelines and invest it into these entrepreneurs that have the ability to create new markets and create jobs and create you know and and fuel our economy and so compassionate capitalists became somebody yes you want to make money and capitalism is you know buying low selling high right you buy something you create something that that adds value to the market and you sell it or you know at a profit and you make capital and that's capitalism right and then I defined compassionate because, you can buy and sell real estate. You can buy and sell stocks, right, and and make money. But the compassion comes because you're deciding to put your money at work, bring an in innovation to the market, creating jobs that ultimately create wealth for all those involved. And so that is a different way of looking at it. So unlike conscious capitalism, which is more internal to the way you run a company and how you treat your employees, how you treat your vendors, your partners, what you impact your community, that's conscious capitalism. That's another kind of a thing out there. Um, uh, uh, Compassionate capitalism in my, in the compassionate capitalist movement is all about, you know, investing time, knowledge, resources, money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market, create jobs and create wealth for all those involved. And for those executives out there that go, oh, man, you know, I'm so bored with my job. I don't know where I'm going to go after this. I'd have to change companies to get another, you know, higher level job. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Right. Oh, no. quit your job. To go start a company, don't do it. The new black, the new midlife crisis has been. Oh, I'm going to go quit my job and start a company. I'm going to put my my college kids at crazy. In like- I'm going to, you know, I, I'm not going to have an affair and buy a new car. I'm going to go and start a startup.
0: Mm-hmm. And something
1: I think I know, and it's a lot more work than any of those executives ever imagined to start a startup. Even if you acquire a company lot more work than what you have in your good job but what you can do is turn on the passion of the things that you're interested in by investing in a company that shares your passion they're solving a problem in the world that you also are really interested in and so it has become the passion of a company is compassion and be that capitalist that invests in that company. And it's amazing because I saw that one Tigo I talked about when we would do the follow-up meetings, these guys that were like, the guy in my book, I have a story in my book telling this. And he, I remember he was, he was a CEO of a company that was a U.S. subsidiary of a foreign owned company. And his only option was to move uh, overseas or go look for a job in another company. And, you know, but he had the cushy, you know, big vacations and kids in private schools and, you know, take off on Friday, go golf and all that kind of stuff. He had never heard of angel investing because financial planners don't talk to people about angel investing.
0: No, because it goes out of their, the, over their,
1: right. it's considered selling away, right? It's, which is a big myth, but you know, anyhow, they have that. They have that, and they just don't talk to him about it. And usually accountants don't and stuff, right? They'll talk to you about how to buy a company and what you need to do that, but not on how to invest in private companies. And so he had heard about this. He got my precursor to the book. He started coming to these meeting, meetings. You should have seen him when he'd walk into these meetings after we invested in Tigo and these other companies. He, they walk in he brought his vp of marketing in he started getting them to be angel investors and they'd have this sort of like this bravado where they would be <laughs> like like yeah i invested in this hot new silicon based rfid tag company right they are like everything they were you just see it the swagger was just you know they just had a, a an energy about them excited about what they were doing the impact they were having with these companies and so that's your midlife crisis, all you listeners out there that you know you shouldn't have it when you're 25. But if you're having a career identity <laughs> crisis,
0: now don't have a midlife crisis at 25. I completely agree. But yes, yeah. But Instead if you have a career identity at 50, just go yeah. and become angel and Right. Your keep perks. your
1: yes. Keep your benefits. Keep your perks. <laughs> do the job. Create your hobby. And this thing, a lot of people in that millennial age got jumped on the Bitcoin, you know, thing, right? That's that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah, Yeah. angel investing is not near as risky as Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. It's not near as risky. And you get to, you know, you're having tangible impact on these companies when you when you do that. So there's all other kind of things you can do to mitigate your risk and, and be more comfortable with your decision. But that's really the framework of it all.
0: Thank you so much, Karen. It has been a great pleasure. I hope to maybe someday have you again soon.
1: Yes, I'd love that. Yes. And please, folks, if you're interested in getting the book, go to inside secrets to angelinvesting.com or you can also find it on my website, Kira. I'll Reels. put it on the show notes. Yes. Great. And uh and join the compassionate capitalist movement, everybody. Let's make yes. this thing happen. Thank you. Thank you, Alondra. I really enjoyed it.